Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 2, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. I usually slur that, so I'm very pleased that I enunciated there. So my name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, Spiritual Grit, and sort of the core book that I've written that focuses really on the themes that we address every week on this podcast. It's called The Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. So right now, we're in a two-month pursuit on the podcast that I'm calling The Newness of You. The reason we're doing this is because in the very first part of the year, usually peters out by about the third week of January, but we still are thinking about who we are and what changes we want to make. That it's a Obviously, it's a fake boundary in our life, the new year, but it does give everyone a chance to pause and think about who we are and how we want to change in the new year. Now, we typically, as human beings, we like hate change, but except for this time of year, when we will actually entertain it, at least for a few weeks. So we do have this kind of universal craving that we could somehow, some way, be a better version of ourselves. This gives us sort of an opportunity to kind of erase the whiteboard and start over a little bit. So we're going to spend these next couple of months and these episodes exploring exactly how Jesus is a catalyst for transformation in our lives, and part of what we're going to do is acknowledge that a lot of the willpower-based and and human strategy-based ways that we try to transform ourselves may work for a bit, but almost always they end up crashing and burning, because they're really dependent on our own strength, and very few people can carry forward their transformational change plans by drawing on the vast reserves of their own willpower. It just doesn't work that well. And it's not biblical. Jesus said that real transformation doesn't happen that way. So if it doesn't happen that way, how does it happen? So what we're going to do is explore the encounters Jesus had with people that did transform them, and slow down and pay more microscopic attention to what's going on there, and how can we invite that same kind of transformation from Jesus in our lives? So in this second episode of the year, we're going to explore my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. I have referenced this many times over the course of uh, many episodes of this podcast, but today we're going to explore it in a way we never have before. So my favorite chapter in all of the Bible uh, has uh, recorded in it an encounter Jesus had with a very large crowd that suddenly became a very small crowd, (laughs) Uh, all the way down to just his 12 disciples. And it's John chapter 6, and I believe this encounter Jesus had with this large crowd and then later with just his disciples upends everything we thought we ever knew about God, and is really the tipping point in history. I would go so far as to say what Jesus does and says in John chapter 6 changes everything in history for us. It helps us to understand the past, 
and certainly gives us a pathway into the future. So I love John chapter 6 so much that my friend Michael Kiefer, who's been on this podcast before, I work with Michael. He's a brilliant author, editor, writer, extraordinaire. I've worked with Michael for a long time. Out of the blue, just before Christmas, he told me when I walked into the office one day that he wanted to make sure he gave me something that he had for me. And I couldn't imagine what it was. And he gave me this brown paper wrapped thing. And it was very artfully done. It had kind of this um, really cool bow on it. And he said, he looked at me and he said, "Um, I just don't want you to open it here. I just want you to open it when you get home. So I took this big thing home and showed it to my wife and my daughter and said, I I want to open this after dinner. And so afterwards, I tore off the bow and opened this thing, and it was a framed page of—it looked like an ancient page from some book. And it had kind of the look that it might have come from a Bible, but the writing I could tell was in Latin. And so inside there was also an envelope from Michael, and he described what this was. And it's really extraordinary that he gave me this thing, but at first I thought this is just a reproduction of something. But essentially what he was giving me is a page from John chapter 6 from the Latina Biblica, which is a Bible that was published in 1497. And Michael explained that he had heard me uh, many times mention that John chapter 6 was my favorite chapter in all the Bible, and it planted this idea in him because he's, he's really one of the best gift givers I've ever met in my life. It planted this idea in him, and he thought, hey, I know a guy, I know a guy, <laughs> who uh, deals in antiquities, and he thought he'd contact his friend and see if what it would take to find a page from John chapter 6 in an ancient Bible. So I'm looking at this framed page, and my mouth is just dropped open. I, I can't fathom that this is what it is. And I said to my wife and my daughter, wow, this is such an incredible gift. It must be a reproduction, though. There's no way that Michael could have given me an actual page from this Bible. So I took the whole thing back the next day to work, and I said to Michael, is this a reproduction? He said, nope, it's the real thing. I was just flabbergasted. I said, Michael, your gift brought tears to my eyes last night after dinner. I can't believe the attention to detail that you had in giving me this gift. Well, it turns out, I don't know how he did it, (laughs) but he actually gave me a page from this Bible, and I've since gotten some special glass and a new frame for it so that I got some museum-quality glass in this frame so that the light would not hurt it. And it's framed in a prominent place in our house. In fact, anyone who comes into our house or comes over for small group or whatever, they can't help but pass this page. It's now going to become one of my favorite stories of all time. But it's even more meaningful, that obviously, that this portion came from John chapter 6. I believe that the crowd encounter here, that's recorded here in this, in this chapter, holds the keys to our transformation. So we're going to read this account right off the bat today. The context, uh, just let me set this up a little bit for you, the context is that Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish, and as a result of that, the people are just blown away by this miracle, and so they almost rise up as a kind of a gang to try to force him to be their king. And when this starts to happen, 
somehow, some way, Jesus slips away, it says, into the wilderness. He sneaks out away from them because that's not what he wants, slips into the wilderness, and even his disciples don't really know where he's going, and they wait around and wait around and wait around, and he, he never comes back. He doesn't return. And they're supposed to cross the Sea of Galilee before it gets any later because there's a storm brewing, and they're supposed to cross the Sea of Galilee in a boat and go on to Capernaum. Well, they do. They push off without Jesus, and in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm, they are freaked out because Jesus comes walking across the water, looking to walk past them on his way to Capernaum, and they freak out and think it's a ghost, and so Jesus stops and comes and comes near the boat and enters the boat, and everything's calm then. The storm calms, and they end up on the shore near Capernaum. So, when others hear about this incredible miracle that Jesus pulls off with the feeding of the 5,000, other ships and boats arrive at that location where he had been, and they find that no, there's no one there now. Jesus is gone, his disciples are gone, the crowds are gone, and they figure out that all of them have gone across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, so they hop back in their boat, boats and they, and they head across to Capernaum. So now he's, he's, he's gathered an even larger crowd, in Capernaum, on this hillside, all of these people wanting to see the fireworks again. (laughs) They want to see the same thing that happened before. So let me pick it up then in John chapter 6, verse 22, and I'll read to the end of this encounter. So it's quite a good chunk here, so settle in for what I think is the tipping point encounter in all of history. So starting with verse 22, reading from my Jesus-centered Bible, here we go. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat, and they realized Jesus had not gone with them. So several boats from Tiberias had landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. Well, they found him on the other side of the lake, and they asked, Hey, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, (laughs) This is so typical of Jesus. He absolutely doesn't answer their question. Hey, very simple question. When did you get here? And Jesus replies with a very complex answer. He says, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, well, We want to perform God's works, too. What should we do? Jesus told them, This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, Now now catch how sly these people are. They answered, Show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, my father did, and now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. (laughs) They are really fixated on their food. Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you've seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. 
And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Well, then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, hey, this isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and at the last day I will raise them up. As it is written in scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father, only I who was sent from God have seen him. Now I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh. Well, then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give his flesh to eat? They asked. And Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. So he said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. Yeah, no doubt. How can anyone accept it? Well, Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, That is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? And Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Okay, we'll stop there. So that is the epic encounter of John chapter 6. All that happened before is super important to understand because obviously that people were following Jesus because of the fireworks, because he did this incredible thing, and unbelievably, they're following him because they think, hey, this guy might be a permanent vending machine for us, dispensing bread and fish all over the place whenever we want it, because this guy can make bread and fish multiply to feed thousands of people. Wow, our grocery store problems are over. <laughs> so they travel following him because they're very much fixated on the type of miracle that he just showed them. 
So what's interesting about this passage, and the reason that I think this is the tipping point of history, is that Jesus is clearly, over and over again, telling the people and telling his disciples that the way to life is to eat him and drink him. In fact, I'm uh, creating courses right now, online courses, for something new that we're developing and starting to release just now called Group U. These are uh, ministry courses that are online and are designed for individuals to take at their own pace, and it's a whole new arena for us as we try to develop other ways of helping people to grow in their not just their relationship with Jesus, but also in their ministry skills. And I have just finishing a course called Jesus-Centered Youth Ministry that we'll be putting up and uh, making available in the next month or so. And one of the sections in this course is called Jesus Wants Us to Eat Him. <laughs> That's what I titled that segment of the course, Jesus Wants Us to Eat Him. And it really is focusing on this John chapter 6 passage. Well, Bob, who's the editor of these courses, you know, I'm writing these courses, but it has to go to a second set of eyes, and Bob, my friend that I work with, was going over this lesson, and he wrote in the margins there, uh, Jesus wants us to eat him? You might want to retitle that. That sounds vaguely sexual and over-intimate. I think people will be put off by that. And my response to him was, I don't think I can change that, because that's exactly what Jesus is inviting people to do in John 6, and your reaction is normal. It's the same reaction that people had when they heard Jesus say these words firsthand. Like, that's really offensive. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> are you a cannibal? You want us to be cannibals? That sounds way over-intimate. Whatever it is you're asking us to do, we don't know how to do that. So, of course, when we see these words and we slow down and we take, take them at face value, of course they're confusing and offensive, and even have some, as Bob mentioned, some sort of kind of fuzzy sexual overtones, or you could take it that way. So that's exactly why I think we need to slow down and pay attention to what's going on here. Eating or consuming something is really at the crux of this encounter, and of course it creates a major disruption in the arc of his popularity, because everyone leaves. <laughs> and you'll, if you track through the Gospel of John, you'll see that after this large crowd gathering, there isn't another one of those. Jesus never again gathers a large crowd until he's entering Jerusalem at the end. But after this, he's really put off a lot of people, including some of his disciples who are wondering, what the heck does that mean? And of course, my favorite, maybe my favorite line in all of the Bible is Peter's response when Jesus says, are you going to leave too? Where else would I go, Jesus? So we'll, in a, in a few moments, we'll uh, slow down and pay some ridiculous attention to this encounter and explore the depths of it in greater detail. But right now, I think it's worth slowing down first to consider what eating really means, and why it's so important to Jesus to use this metaphor. I've said on the podcast before, whenever Jesus uses a metaphor, it should be like a alarm bell in your head to stop and slow down and ask yourself, do I really understand the metaphor that Jesus is using? Because he, he chooses only perfect metaphors, and that means that 
when you ram into a metaphor Jesus is using, develop the habit of asking yourself, do I really understand what's involved in that metaphor, whether it's sheep and shepherd or vine and branches? In this case, he's using the metaphor of eating and drinking. Of course, he's not inviting the crowds and his disciples to physically eat his flesh and physically drink his blood. He's using metaphoric language here, but because he's using a metaphor, it should tell us, stop, slow down, let's, even if we think we understand how eating works, let's assume we don't. So that's what I did. I assumed I didn't know how eating works, and I was right. <laughs> I didn't. We all eat, and therefore we think we don't need to understand any more than what it takes to put something in our mouth, chew it, swallow it, and enjoy it. But actually, I, I looked into the mechanics of eating, and it's quite complex, the organs and processes in our body that are all involved in eating. It's an incredibly diverse and beautiful sort of interior work to translate whatever it is you just ate, a piece of toast, let's say, into energy for your cells. So let's just walk through the mechanics of eating real quick here. First of all, to eat something, you have to take something from outside your body and put it inside your body. So you're putting something inside your mouth, which is one of the outward outward invitations that our body offers. You put it inside your mouth, and it's something that was outside that now becomes disappeared into your body, so it's inside you. And the first thing we do is we chew it to break it down into little chunks, and then it goes into our esophagus, and our esophagus is like a big muscle that forces those little chunks of food down into our stomach. It pushes those chunks of food down into our core, if you want to call it that. And there in our stomach, at our core, the acid in our stomach starts to kill the bad stuff, any bacteria or anything else that might have taken a ride on that food down the esophagus, the acid in our stomach kills that bacteria, but it also breaks down that food into even tinier chunks. And when they're tiny enough, the stomach starts to sort of push them into the small intestine. Where they're in the small intestine, they're broken down to a molecular level. So the small intestine also is like a muscle. It also sort of grinds and chews, and the chemicals and the surface of the small intestine break down that food to a molecular level so that it can be absorbed into the walls of that small intestine, and then that translates all that used to be chunks of food into molecular, uh, uh, into the molecular level so it can flow into the bloodstream, where it in turn goes to the liver, and the liver turns all of that broken-down food into uh, proteins and sugars and fats, translates all of that into energy, and feeds our cells. Essentially, this process means that the food that we consume that used to be outside of us now becomes one with us. The food is no longer a separate thing from us. It has joined who we are. We literally become our food, and our food becomes us. I was looking around for, you know, is it really true that we are what we eat? You know, we've said that before. But what does that really mean, if you slow down and pay attention to it? I found a nutritionist named Cynthia Sass, who—I just want to read you something from a blog she wrote. The blog is titled, Why You Really Are What You Eat. Let me just read you a little section of this blog, because I think it's fascinating. The phrase, you are what you eat, is literally true. Nutrients from the foods you eat 
provide the foundation of the structure, function, and integrity of every little cell in your body, from your skin and hair to your muscles, bones, digestive, and immune systems. You may not feel it, but you're constantly repairing, healing, and rebuilding your body. Every cell in your body has a shelf life. A stomach cell lives for about a day or two, a skin cell for about a month, and a red blood cell for about four months. So each and every day, your body is busy making new cells to replace those that have expired. And how healthy those new cells are is directly determined by how well you've been eating. A diet filled with highly processed food that's low on nutrients doesn't give your body much to work with. I always say it's like constructing a house with cardboard and tape instead of bricks and mortar. On top of all that regeneration of cells, you're also always repairing your existing cells. That includes recovering from wear and tear of exercise, as well as everyday life things like stress and pollution and stubbing your toe and so forth. Because your body is essentially one big, miraculous, 24-7 construction site. You can change the way you look and feel pretty quickly. So she's saying, you know, this saying that we have, you are what you eat, isn't just a saying. It's actually true. The food we take in actually becomes the building blocks of our cells. The food becomes one with us. So it's important to slow down and consider that this is the reality of what Jesus was saying. He meant when he said, you must eat me and drink me, he meant every part of that metaphor. He meant that chewing and digesting and these little particles becoming one with us is exactly what he meant when he said this. So when we think about this metaphor that Jesus is using and extend its meaning to its rational conclusion, we have to accept that what Jesus is saying is this process that he wants us to engage in with him will end with us becoming in him, coming to be in him, and he coming to be in us. And later on in the Gospel of John, he says this rather explicitly in John chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says this to his disciples when he's about to leave. He's trying to tell them, uh, you know, I'm, I'm headed out of here. I know you don't understand it right now, but I'm headed out of here, but I have a plan for when I'm leaving. So here's what he says. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. And when I'm raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I want you to think about that statement Jesus just made. I will be in my Father, you will be in me, and I will be in you, in light of the whole digestive process that I just walked through. He's using that metaphor, and in fact, our bodies themselves and how our bodies work are a metaphor for the relational connection that Jesus wants us to have with him, and the process by which we get that kind of relational connection. He's literally given us a metaphor in our own body that we can learn from to understand what it looks like to have a greater intimacy with him. So if you... uh, if you put this all in a different light, if you think about, you know, we're called to be obedient to God, Jesus asks us to be obedient to him. Well, obedience really just means doing what Jesus wants us to do, but we do that because we're literally living out his body. As we grow more in him and he becomes more planted in us, 
we are simply living out the very things that he already wants to do. Obedience looks much more organic, looks much more natural and normal than something that's planted in our willpower. As we become more and more him, because we eat and drink him, we find ourselves with what we might call, in a cliched way, the mind of Christ. We start thinking like him and acting like him. So obedience really is less about willpower and more about how we become absorbed in him and he becomes absorbed in us. We, we take on the very nature of Jesus as we eat and drink him. Think about this. We, we often refer to the body of Christ, that we are the body of Christ. Well, that's a lot more literal than you might have thought before if you consider what absorption really means eating and drinking Jesus, absorbing him into our very being, and then he becomes part of us, we literally are the body of Christ. We're living out his heart and mind and will in the world. Well, now let's revisit John chapter 6 now, using this lens of eating as a way of exploring this in greater detail. If we slow down and pay attention to this encounter, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, I just want to jump around in this account to point out some things that I think that are important for us to consider. First of all, the crowds that end up engaging Jesus in Capernaum are out looking for him. They are drawn to him, they're fascinated by him, there's something that's hooked them. What comes out is that they're really drawn to the fireworks that Jesus has brought with him, these miraculous things that he's doing but they are fascinated with him. They are motivated to seek him. So as Jesus recognizes why they're following him, he says it right out in the front. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood these miraculous signs. He's saying, you don't get what those miraculous signs that I just did are really all about. You're translating that as, wow, he can make food out of nothing. What a magic trick! I wonder if he can do it again. Jesus is saying, you don't really understand why I did that. You're thinking it's about food. Forget about it. Don't spend your energy, he says, seeking things like that. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life I can give you. They're thinking on a low level here, like, where can we get more of that stuff? And they're not realizing that Jesus is offering them a lot more than that. In fact, the people say, hey, Jesus, you know, show us a sign. You know, Moses gave us manna out of the wilderness, and Jesus has to correct them and says, you know, Moses didn't give you that bread. My father did. You're missing the point here. So they are pressing in on him, and they seem ridiculously focused on getting more food from him. And so Jesus finally turns the table on him and says, look, I'll be blunt with you. I am the bread of life. Why do you want that food when you can ingest meat? This line of challenge that Jesus uh, engages them with starts in verse 35, and it continues through the rest of this chapter. Over and over and over again, he comes back to this idea that he is bread to be consumed. He wants them to eat him. And of course, the people murmur, and they're, they're struggling with this, and they say what you or I would say, hey, what does he mean? He's bread come down from heaven. We know this guy. We know his dad and mom. Isn't he the son of Joseph? How can he say he came down from heaven? We know where he came from. What's wrong with this guy? Is he nuts? And Jesus, undaunted, says, nope, uh, I am the bread of life. And he says, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. 
Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, though, will never die. So he's saying this bread that comes down from heaven is life itself. If they will consume him, they will find life. Food does give us life. If we go without food for too long, we'll die. But that's temporary. That kind of food only gives us temporary life. That's why we have to eat three meals a day, or however many you eat. We have to continue to eat in order to live. And Jesus is saying, hey, but if you eat me one time and you're done, (laughs) you've got life. If you eat me, you'll have life forever. Well, the people, of course, misconstrue what he's saying, and they think he's offering them a permanent vending machine of bread. They don't get it, as you or I probably wouldn't get it. And finally, he gets even more explicit when the people are wrestling over, how are we supposed to eat this guy's flesh? And why would we do that in the first place? So Jesus has to get explicit, and he says this in verse uh, 53, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you can't have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Think about what we just learned about the digestive process. He's saying, anyone who eats me will remain in me, and I will remain in him. He's saying, you will absorb me into yourself if you do this. So, remaining in him and him remaining in us is really the absorption process of the digestive process of eating something. So, and the other thing that he's saying here is that because Jesus is eternal life, therefore when we eat him, we get eternal life. Because if you are what you eat, and what you're eating is eternal life, which is what Jesus describes himself as, then you get eternal life. You know how we always talk about... um, how are people going to heaven? Am I going to heaven? Um, have I made the decision so that I have eternal life? It's less a decision and more about your eating habits. <laughs> if you eat Jesus, who is eternal life, then you're consuming eternal life and it becomes part of you. You absorb eternal life into yourself. Now, when he says these things, obviously the reaction that people have is they're not only confused, they're offended because he won't stop talking about this eating and drinking stuff. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples, because he hears them complaining, does this offend you? Well, guess what? What do you think is going to happen when you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? He's saying, wow, if this offends you, that I'm asking you to eat and drink me, where do you see me in the kingdom of God? Where do you see what reality is really like? Oh my gosh, the intimacy there is really going to offend you. Now, this is offensive, and I want you to hang with me here for a second, because this is going to sound bizarre and probably off-limits when I first say this, but just hang with me here. Let yourself settle into this. I know this is going to sound strange and weird and new, but just give me a moment and sink into this. What Jesus is saying is offensive expressly because it is over-intimate. Either it's cannibalism, or he's asking us to do something that is so intimate and vulnerable and exposed that it makes us incredibly uncomfortable and offended by it. And one reason why is we also treat our sexual behaviors as dirty and private. They're wonderful as long as they're private, but if they're exposed, there's something naughty and dirty about them, because the aspect of our sexual behaviors that has that impact on us is that they are so vulnerable and intimate. 
it's almost like we need to keep these things private because they're too vulnerable and intimate. Well, of course, sex was created by God, we're told, for two reasons. For procreation, which means to add more life to the world, but also as a metaphor for the kind of intimacy he intends in his relationship with us. So one unexplored truth in the experience of sexual intercourse tracks, get by think, tracks back to God's subversively redemptive agenda in our lives. So hang with me here. He has paired the most intense pleasure we experience in life with the exact moment when we experience our greatest loss of control. Our sexual behaviors lead to momentary loss of control. Now, think about this. God has left us an unmistakable enticement. He's calling us to leave behind our toxic, controlling lifestyle for the intoxicating freedom of abandonment to Him. In no other aspect of our lives is a loss of control considered acceptable or welcome, but in sexual intercourse, a loss of control is the goal. And this is sort of the bait He dangles before our hungry souls. Give yourself to me, and I will give myself to you. Now, eating is also, I believe, as intimate (laughs) and sometimes as pleasurable as the other gift God has given us, sexual intercourse. But we eat so often, and it's such a normal, accepted part of our day, that we don't often think about it in the intimate, vulnerable way that it really is. But we really are taking something from outside our body, inside our body. And uh, by the way, I have no idea what you're thinking right now, but we have to go back to Jesus, who says, if this offends you, how will you handle the face-to-face offense of my reality? He's really saying, the kind of intimacy you are created for with me, if you can't get your mind around this, it's going to offend you, because I want way more than what you have been led to believe I want in the Church. I don't primarily want you to uh, march lockstep with all of my guidelines for life. Yes, my guidelines for life in my commandments, I want you to be obedient to them because this is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. This is what it means to live fully alive. But I'm not primarily concerned about how well you're performing. What I really long for is intimacy in our relationship. And this is why, at the end of this, what Peter responds to Jesus with is just so profound to me. After all of this, and Peter, of course, still doesn't understand all the ins and outs of what eat me and drink me means, but then Peter shows Jesus the effect of the digestive process in his own relationship with him, because Jesus says, in light of the offense, and in light of the crowds leaving him, and just they've had it with him, that this is just too much, it's too offensive. In light of that, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, such a vulnerable thing, are you going to leave too? And Peter looks at him and says these words, you alone have eternal life, you are our only hope. Not your words or your teachings, Jesus, but the consumption of you, the eating and drinking of you, is our only hope. I thought I'd throw out there, I just love the way the Amplified Bible translates that last thing that Peter says. In the Amplified Bible, here's which is amplifying every little word that Peter says into its extended meaning, here's how it reads. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You are our only hope. 
we have believed and confidently trusted, and even more, we have come to know by personal observation and experience that you are the Holy One of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God. This amplified version of Peter's response, I think, captures the essence of this response. He's saying, as I've said many times before, I am now ruined for you in the same way that a man and woman come together, and Jesus says the two now have become one. They are no longer two separate individuals because they've committed themselves in marriage to each other. The two have become one. Peter is saying, I have become one with you. I have metaphorically married you, Jesus. I have metaphorically chewed on you, digested you, and now you are deep a part of me, and there's no way I can separate your presence in me from me. You are so deeply part of me that it's impossible now for me to separate myself from you, no matter what that leads to, no matter where this is all headed. So what does this all mean to eat Jesus and drink Jesus every day of our life? And how does that really transform us? So as we close here, let me give you a few things to think about. What does it mean to eat and drink Jesus on a every moment, every hour, every day basis? How do we do that? We are just as confused by this, by the way, as the people listening to Jesus at the time. But he would not give up this metaphor. He repeated it over and over again. He's trying to tell us, no, don't move off of this. Don't let yourself be offended by this. Don't let confusion drive you away. I want you to explore what it looks like for you to eat and drink me. So here's a few things to think about to eat and drink Jesus in your everyday life. First of all, whenever you're reading about Jesus in Scripture, and I want, here's one recommendation I want to give you, read something that Jesus said or did every day. No matter whatever else you're doing in your uh, time with God, or your Bible reading time, or your daily devotional time, whatever else you do, also incorporate at least a little bite of something Jesus said or did. If you think about good nutrition for your day, and you're thinking about what's a balanced diet for my meals today, you can think about the same thing relative to your spiritual diet. I need a daily dose of things Jesus said and did. I just have to have it. I need to be able to chew on those things and add those nutrients to my spiritual life. Every day, savor his words and actions. Obviously, you can read elsewhere and read other books besides Scripture, but when you do, always eat those things with an eye toward looking through Jesus to understand those things. Make Jesus a present reality, no matter what it is you're reading. But when you are reading the things that Jesus said and did, as we've talked about before on this podcast, slow way down, slow your pace. Don't concern yourself with how much of this chunk you need to ingest. I wouldn't, on the other side of that, I wouldn't just pick out a lone little verse outside of its context. Pick out a little chunk, like you would, you know, I, I love oatmeal raisin cookies, but I don't just shove the whole thing into my mouth at one time. I break off a little piece and eat it. So find a little piece of Jesus, something he said or did, and slow down and eat it. And one way that I eat Jesus is I ask the question, why, over and over again, as I'm savoring that little bite of Jesus. And why meaning, why would Jesus do or say what he's doing or saying right now? 
and I don't stop asking why until I get at something in his heart. I don't accept surface answers or uh, Sunday school answers. Um, I keep asking why until I'm able to describe something or appreciate something about the heart of Jesus. That's really the bedrock that we want to get to. Why did Jesus say or do that? And then you carefully, slowly, thoughtfully consider your answer to that until you feel satisfied by it. And by satisfied, I mean the typical response I have is, wow, I never thought about that before. Look at his heart. I have a new appreciation for his heart and a broader scope of his heart when I ask why over and over again. Why did Jesus say or do that? Another thing you can do to eat or drink Jesus every day is invite, invite, invite. Now, here's what I mean by that. We have all kinds of things going on internally in us all day long. We have all kinds of emotions. Are you worried about something? Invite him into your worry. Are you hungry, either physically or emotionally or spiritually hungry? Invite him into that hunger. Literally say, Jesus, I invite you in to my anxiety right now. I invite you in to the hunger I have for this. This longing I have for this thing that's about to happen in my life, I invite you into it. I want you to be a part of it. Uh, Are you disappointed? Invite him into your disappointment. Are you struggling? Invite him in. Are you delighting in something? Invite him into that. The kingdom of God works on the basis of invitation. What I mean by that is um, Jesus will never force his way into your life. He will never force you to follow him. He will never force you to love him. He will never should you into believing in him. He will only invite. As we talked about in our last podcast episode, one chief way of invitation in our life is when we feel desperate and dependent on him. Then we invite Jesus. That's one of the reasons why we feel desperate and dependent in our life, is it's a volitional way for us to invite what we normally would keep away. So we invite Jesus into our story because we're desperate and we need him. Well, why not invite him into all aspects of your story when you're not desperate and in need of him to show up in a kind of a crisis way? Invite him into everything. The way this looks like for me is simply being, first of all, self-aware. I'm aware that I'm angry right now, or I'm frustrated right now, or I've had a dream thwarted in my life, or I have, I'm full of laughter and delight right now. I just consciously have learned, just through you know a little bit of practice, like riding a bike, to simply invite Jesus into those moments. When you invite, 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 you start to chew on bits of him more often. You start to ingest Jesus more often in your life, even outside of reading about him in Scripture. Another way to eat eat and drink Jesus on a daily basis is to ask the question that John Ortberg made the title of his great book. It's called, Who Is This Man? I love the title of the book, and I love the book even more. I encourage you to go out and get John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man? It's a uh, upending book. But I love that question, who is this man? What we do in our life to eat and drink Jesus is ask ourselves this question over and over again. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? How would I describe him right now? Now how would I describe him? What is he doing and why is he doing it? Who is he? This is the the greatest question we can live our life by. 
who is Jesus? And in response, what Jesus does, because he's so generous, he in turn helps us to understand who we are. As we ask him who he is, in his generosity, embedded within his answer to that question, he helps us to understand who we are. If you think back to his encounter with Peter early on, when um, Jesus asked his disciples, who, who did all these crowds say that I am? And they list off a bunch of Old Testament prophets, and then Jesus looks at him and says, well, who do you say that I am? And there's this awkward silence before Peter speaks up, and he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' immediate response is, wow, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. The Spirit, my Spirit, revealed that to you, because that's true. And here's who you are, Peter. Up until that point, he'd been known as Simon. Now he's going to be known as Petros, Peter, the rock. So Jesus reveals to Peter who he really is in the slipstream of Peter answering the question, who is Jesus? So ask the question over and over again in your life, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Another way to eat and drink Jesus on an everyday basis is to adventure or to play with him. I talk a lot about on the podcast about what it means to play with Jesus. We have made everything surrounding our relationship with Jesus so formal, so regimented, so formulaic, that we have forgotten that it's a relationship. And in good relationships, the two people play with each other. They have fun together. They go on adventures together so that they can enjoy each other. It's unpredictable. <laughs> that means all relationships are improvised. All great relationships are one beautiful act of improvisation, and that's what Jesus is inviting us into, an improvisational relationship full of adventure and play. So here's an example of what I mean by that. I was taking a walk with my daughter Lucy the other day. Uh, she's in, home from college for just another few days or so, and she was trying to decide about whether to go on a trip with some of her best friends or not. And she has the money that she has saved to go on this trip if she wanted to, but she just wasn't sure if she felt comfortable spending that money, but she was afraid she would miss out. Like her best friends would have this experience without her, and they'd have this shared memory that she wouldn't have. But she has this tug inside, and she doesn't know. She hasn't been able to commit, and everyone else has already committed. So she was just talking to me the whole walk about, you know, how do I figure this out? I don't know what to do with this. And at the end of our walk, I just said, you know, here's something you could try. This is a way of playing with Jesus that I often do, and I don't take it seriously. I just play. So I said, you know, Lucy, you could just talk to Jesus and ask him, hey, I don't know what to do here, so I need you to play with me here and give me an obvious indicator as to whether I should go on this trip or not, kind of like that Old Testament fleece. You know, we put out the fleece outside of our door, and if it's wet on the underside of it, it means it means one thing, and if it's not wet, it means another thing. And we've kind of derided that today in the Church, that, you know, putting out a fleece is kind of like superstitious or something. I said to Lucy, I don't believe it's superstitious when you just playfully say to Jesus, hey, play with me here, give me something that is undeniable that would indicate whether I should go or not on this trip, and Jesus, my pledge to you is I'll be looking for it. I'm alert and awake, and I'm looking for this, whatever it is you're going to throw my way. And I even told her, why don't you give it a boundary? Just say to Jesus, I'll, I'll give it a week till next Tuesday, and between now and then I'll look for this obvious way. 
So is that superstitious? I don't think so. It's Jesus is inviting us to have more fun in our relationship with him, to try things and experiment with things and not be so dang worried about screwing up. Children, which is Jesus told us we can't understand and live in the kingdom of God unless we become like children, children try things, experiment with things, and they don't put so much stress on themselves to get it right the first time. They just try stuff, and Jesus is inviting us to try stuff. You'll know if you're headed down a wrong path. The Spirit of Jesus in you will give you a good nudge, and if you're headed into a direction that you shouldn't go or is not the direction He wants you to go, He'll guide and direct you. He's faithful. He wants to guide and direct you. And here's the last thing. I just encourage you to pray with expectation, meaning knock, 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 knock on his door. If you want to eat and drink Jesus on an everyday basis, knock on his door, and don't stop knocking until he answers it. That's why he told the parable of the man who knocked on his best friend's door late at night because he had sudden guests arrive, and he didn't have any bread for them, and the man whose door he was knocking on had already gone to bed, and but he kept knocking, and in the story, Jesus said the man had shameless persistence. And then the master of the house finally came down, not out of friendship, Jesus said, but simply because he was bothered into getting up out of his bed and coming down, and he gave the man the bread. Basically, Jesus in the parable is saying, be like that. Knock, knock, knock on my door. I'm the master of the house that's gone to sleep in the parable. Knock, knock, knock on the door until I get up and answer the door. It's an intimate way that close friends will persist past the social cues that they should. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, when you pray, pray with expectation. If you're leaning into me, if you're trying to get guidance from me or just trying to share something with me, don't give up so easy. Knock, knock, knock on my door, because when you knock, knock, knock on the door, you're developing a pattern and a habit of intimacy. You're expecting him to show up because your intimacy with him it drives your persistence. Be shamelessly persistent with him. There you have it, some things to think about. Well, gang, thanks again for listening this week. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, everything I've talked about today on the Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com page. You just want to look for our podcast section in Season 4, Episode 2. Again, this series over the next two months is called The Newness of You. We'll explore another encounter Jesus had next week with someone, completely different pathway into transformation. We'll explore a new one next week with our friend, uh, the Becky Nader. She'll be back again for the next episode. And by the way, don't forget, um, we mentioned this the last episode, you can still snag one of the last 2019 Jesus-centered planners before they're completely sold out. I just saw a notice today that we only have a, a few left, so if you haven't already gotten one, search for Jesus Center Planner and see if you can grab one before they're all gone. This is a fantastic way to help propel you into and through the 2019 year with a focus, a magnetic focus on Jesus. So don't miss out. Grab one before they're all gone. You can also start a new or restore an existing habit of, of chewing regularly on Jesus in the Bible by getting to Jesus Center Bible if you don't already have one. I mentioned every day, take a little bite of Jesus. Well, that's essentially why we created the Jesus Centered Bible, to make it easy for you to do that. So if you haven't already gotten a Jesus Centered Bible, I encourage you to, to do that. It will propel you into the kind of you you want to be this year, a you that eats more Jesus. <laughs> or you can also 
I, I mentioned the Jesus-centered life at the top of the show. That's another way that can refocus you and give you kind of a hunger and an appetite for eating more of Jesus every day. So check out the Jesus-centered life. Well, gang, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. <laughs>